Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, art, and whoever else we can find that's out there trying to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Eric Kessel. We're back this week with some more remarkable guests, Mario Nuno do Rosario of Arquitectura y Planeamiento Limitada in Maputo, Mozambique. I met Nuno and Mario somewhat on a lark and did that thing my dad always told me to do, which is to shut up and listen while they spoke with me about the history of architecture in Mozambique going back to the War for Independence. Last week, we had a great discussion with Shei Ying Chun about resilience and reconstruction, where he had touched on something that I thought was fairly profound, that we needed to stop thinking of the poor and the stricken as consumers of our stuff, and reconceive them as producers that can make their own stuff with a little help. If you haven't listened to that episode, you can find it and all past episodes on our website at currystonefoundation.org. So what was I doing in Mozambique? Well, I was there investigating micro-disasters again. This time it was landfill landslide outside of Maputo. However, this story isn't about that. That's for a later date. This story begins when I met Mario and Nuno, just after I first arrived in Mozambique, and they took me through a long discussion about the history of architecture in Mozambique, starting with independence, and overlaid with narratives of colonization, Soviet occupation, and different forms of power. In this two-part story, you're going to hear how Mario and Nuno pushed their practice of community-centered architecture amidst a backdrop of colonizers, post-colonizers, Soviet occupation, and at least one actual Nazi. They've advocated for an architecture that is rooted in place and material, and has interests of people at heart. We spoke candidly about the West's efforts to help slash interfere in the development of Africa, and I came away with a story that I knew you needed to hear. For many humanitarians and humanitarian designers, Africa has too long served as a petri dish. It's a place where you can go and run this experiment or that one. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But in any case, you can always remove yourself easily from the consequences of any mistakes. For 40 years, Mario has watched foreigners come and go, including myself. Hearing his wisdom on how to make architecture in Mozambique was humbling and inspiring for me, and he offers a definition of resilience as brilliant as I've ever heard. So enough small talk, let's get to the show. I think I wanted to start with the history portion and, and how this kind of modern movement of architecture took place in Mozambique going back to the revolution. And if I recall correctly, well, let's start at the revolution. Independence occurs and then... The independence uh, is called the revolution, but is the collapse of the colonial system. And so the, the thing changes in Portugal and they abandoned Mozambique. It means struggle for liberation after 10 years. They could not survive and the militaries has done the, the changes in Portugal. Consequently, Mozambique became independent. It means we became out of the international market. It was decided to be independent. Never more accepted colonialism. It was a good decision, but we were inserted in this region of South Africa, trying to become independent. It means politically and economically. After five years, we developed a lot of the social systems like health and education. We duplicated the number of schools and number of health centers. A lot of international volunteers came to share the experience of independent society, independent of the capitalism. When you were graduating architecture school? I was studying on that time in Portugal. We were around 300 
Mozambique and studying in different courses in Portugal. And we are invited to, to return to the country, knowing that everything will be abandoned. And so we have all these 300 come back, 200, 300, I don't know. On that time, all these young people took the, the, the... They ran the country. When Mozambique became independent, it was a joint agreement with the Portuguese government and the Mozambican Liberation Front to cease the hostilities. Portugal had uh, 25 de Abril, which was their own revolution, that shifted their government system, which consequently led to the, in the independence of the colonies. When Mario and all these other young men, young people work, were studying in Portugal, came back, all Portuguese officials left. So all government offices were left uh, without administration capabilities. So it was tasked upon them, because they had done some studies, to keep the country running, or otherwise the country would have stopped. Uh, Milou is part of a generation called the March 8th generation, which is another group of students finishing high school in Mozambique at the time, wow. in 77. And they were not given an option. They were taken into a technical quick course on all professions, teaching nurses, veterinarians, and uh, they did one year of technical course with military training, and sent. they got sent throughout all the country. In the middle of literally nowhere, they were given a school, you are taught as a teacher, you have to run the school. And that was your capacity as an architect? At that time I was on the, finishing the first year of architecture. First year? <laughs> <laughs> so you very well qualified. I was considered <laughs> most graduated in the region, in Beira. He said, you, you, you can't take care. So, but we, we need to understand that it was the front of the Liberation Front. He invited all the young people to, to assume the role that we could assume. In, in Mario's case, he was based in Beira, in Sufala, which is right in the center of the country. The administration for public works left. They, they had to kick out the director at the time because he was running a fascist tabloid after the independence. So After the, the, the changes in Portugal. And even after he understood incorrectly what is the liberation. And so he was a Nazi and starts to produce a Nazi pamphlet. And so he was discharged, dismissed immediately. But the directorate had to continue. And next day I, was, I became the director of, the, of those services. So the front of liberation, the liberation front invited all the young people to do what they can do, understanding the sense of the independence, the anti-colonialism, and sometimes everybody, uh, the people that come from outside, consider that uh, uh, socialist or communism option and we, we have no option on that. We have no political education. It was, the colonials must go back and we have to take care of the service. And so for some years we ran it under our own. It, it, the, the, the services were, were performed with bare minimum, below bare minimum levels. Fuel, food, qualifications, tools. So for five years, all services ran and all bridges were repaired, and all schools were rebuilt, mm -hmm. and uh, staff got paid, with a group of youngsters running a 3,500 uh, kilometer 
country. And nothing stopped, actually. It, the development stopped, obviously, but the, the country carried on. So after those five years, what happened? For the first time, we had a doctor in each district to understand that we had schools for the Portuguese with a good level. It was not allowed a Mozambican to be a teacher. So all teachers are, were Portuguese. In very remote areas, Mozambican are teachers, but they are teaching four classes in the same room. It was considered an elementary school, but the Mozambican school not go for the secondary school. Only through the missions, Catholic missions or Christian missions, they could enter in secondary school. And so the health system, it was for the Portuguese. In the remote areas, there was some assistance to the population, especially on the endemic areas that come and affect the Portuguese areas. And then at one point, uh, the Soviet Union showed up. And so before the Soviet Union, the South Africans starts to destroy all these achievements. They start to kill the nurses, the doctors, the teachers. And all the infrastructure that you And build. also all the infrastructure. Those first five years, between 77 and 82, were the, putting all these youngsters throughout the country help the country establish itself, train people, get capacity. As this capacity was being, was being installed in the districts, so you had one doctor per district, you started having roads, started having a railway restarted. The apartheid government saw this as a potential attack, so they started undermining this development. By, they supplied weapons to, the, to a supposedly opposition front, and these started attacking the villages and killing the nurse, killing the teacher. They were very targeted attacks, they were not mass murdering. They were attacking the very strategic points, telling people, you cannot be a nurse, you cannot be a teacher, you cannot house these, this development. Uh, that's when the Soviet Union came in to help with facing this issue and re-establishing the country. Uh, at the time, and until, until today, a lot of people will not agree with the fact that this was actually the Iron Curtain fight, the Cold War had been happening in our land. But in fact, that's what it was. The um, trade-off for the Soviet Union to help us was to let them install a military capacity against the border with uh, Anglo-American countries. My understanding now is that uh, they, they trade access to the South African border offering a big support to Mozambique, financial support. It means full food, education system, health system, the Which was groups of doctors, the teachers. And after the, the Soviets came the Cubans. It was a great help, doctors, nurses. Best doctors in the world. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of Eastern European countries, uh, Hungary, Poland, Czechs, all the Eastern Bloc. Uh, arrived here in mass. To, until today, you still have lingering the teachers, a lot of teachers, a lot of doctors that came and remained. Italy has a lot of uh, professionals living in Mozambique. I remember one day the president, Samara Michel, in the National Assembly, the, the parliament, said, you ha we have no money, we have no food. The Eastern Bloc say we have to change the party, the, the Liberation Front, convert in a Marxist-Leninist party, change the flag for a red flag, 
what to do. Change everything as they say and feed our people or, or die. And so let's, let's do it. And so we are not Marxist Leninists, but we'll, we'll, we'll sign off on it. <laughs> Doesn't matter the color of the flag. And so. There's a collection of, collection of movies of that time that show a parliament full of young people with the sole intention of bringing up the country. So it was not a communist option, it was a surviving option. And after, after that, the, in fact, we have the big support and we start, restart to go up and South Africa starts to destroy much more. That's when the European Union invited Mozambique to sign a, a non-aggression uh, agreement with, uh, with South Africa. It, it was done in uh, 86, and after that, the president was killed. You're listening to Social Design Insights. We hope you've been enjoying these thoughts from Mario Nuno do Rosario of Arquitectura Planeamento Limitada. But we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to be having a really honest conversation about the problematics of international aid, and you're going to learn a lot. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights after the break. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We've been speaking with Mario Nuno do Rosario of Arquitectura y Planeamiento Limitada about the historical backdrop of design in Mozambique. Coming up, Mario Nuno starts to break down the business model of international aid in Mozambique and how it squares or doesn't square with the built environment. Let's rejoin the conversation. The last time we spoke, we, we talked about successive ways of colonization in, in Mozambique and I guess by extension, you know, other countries in Africa as well. Yeah that it kind of went from the Portuguese to the Soviets, and now it seems to be colonized by some international consortium of World Bank and NGOs and these countries. Is that accurate? Uh, after the peace agreement, of the non-aggression agreement, uh, arrived more than 300 international NGOs. 300? More than three. In one year, 300 NGOs installed with helicopters, with 4x4s, with radios, like an army. Like an army doing everything else. Uh, now we can see that it was a, a very bad option, nothing lasting after 20 years. Let's tease that out because, you know, originally I came to, to Mozambique to, to talk about resilience and, you know, we had such a great conversation yeah. that I really wanted to, to follow it up um, with this podcast. And one of the things that we discussed was that, you know, a lot of the work that's been done under this international agency is not... It's not built to last. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sort of fits in with an international agenda of come in, build a school. It's going to fall apart in five years, but that's fine because we get to build another school five years from now, right? And it's kind of a constant business cycle. You have uh, people working for these organizations that generally want to help and generally want to do good. But the system is set up in such a way that these, these institutions have to perform their contracts so fast that they skip a lot of quality control and quality, even in contracting. Uh, we just finished a series of warehouses for the United Nations, for the food support program of the United Nations. They were the first resilient warehouses, uh, agricultural warehouses that they built 
in their program since they are here. Which means that even the people working in the program say, you know, finally, we are finally delivering a building that we know will last. So it means that it's not the people. I don't know if it's a business module, but the fact is a lot of people come to tick a box. So it's, it's more of a tick the box attitude. I've been there, I did something, it's there, I solved that problem, and they go away. This person will move to another organization or higher up in the Esalon or the, their organization and not come back and see if it's still working as intended or not. But the Mozambicans still have to live with that. Yes, yeah. That modern world, the resilience, on that time, on 90, all this group of young people, uh, we decided do not criticize the 300 arriving NGOs. We decided to create our own NGO, a Mozambican NGO called Mozambican Association for Urban Development. We put our money from our pocket. So these guys are called NGOs, but in fact they are government organizations because they only use government funding doing what they are instructed to do. And we generate our own NGO and decided to teach each community to solve their problems. And on the last 20 years, 25 years, we have worked in more than 1,000 places. During the war, all communities moved, migrated for a safety place. And so we went to some places and invited everybody to rebuild the primary school, involving the soldiers from both sides without identifying them as community partners. And that generated a movement of many villages wanting to, to do. We, de we designed a steel structure like a mechano toy to assembly with the community and uh, organizing groups of 10 families to make walls, to pay the teachers uh, or to invite the teachers to come back to the place, paid by the Minister of Education and restarting it. And we discovered that with less than half of the cost of the international NGOs, we can solve the problem. So why isn't that more prolific? I mean, I, I hear that story sometimes, and, you know, these sort of locally grown groups get together and they start executing projects, and it's, you know, at, at half the cost, um, it's more sophisticated in terms of the way that it involves communities. I mean, is the, the sort of international aid community just stuck in an old way of thinking? Is it a matter of slow institutional change or? We were considered persona non grata on this system because government officials and NGOs officials or government assistant from, from abroad is a big business. But to build with half of the resources is not a good business for everybody. And everybody was criticizing that that cannot be the system because the NGOs bribed everybody many times. We have some criticizing from the old food program that we are building very uh, too, too, durable too schools, too, too, too resilient. resilient <laughs> they have never done all over the world for many years. They, they have emergency assistance. They solve the emergency, but never lasts. And yeah. we consider it's not contradictory to, to solve the problem in a durable way that you can, in five years, you don't need to come back. And that is, was a very important critique for our activity.
The association chose the path of not criticizing the operation of other organizations because the main critic process is building, is doing. So that was the choice. The foreign aid attitude is an overhead game. It's about overheads. If you set up uh, an NGO that works, it's it's self-sustainable, and uses 100% of the fund to build something that will not need rebuilding anytime soon, you're killing the business. It means that in 20 years, aid will not be necessary in the areas that you are affecting. So if the system learns, the population learns more, you get less and less people who need, people in need. So it almost sounds like there's something, uh, there's a market incentive for a kind of anti-resilience, yeah. Yeah. right? I mean, it's sort of baked into the business model that you know we're going to design things to fall apart because then we have the opportunity and indeed the mandate to do them over again. It's not directly, directly saying, let's build poorly. It's saying, I have $1 million. If I become more magical with the detailing, I can do probably two more buildings, which means, in reality, using subpar quality materials for some solutions, it means you will tell your, your funding partner, I'm doing two more uh, warehouses. But nobody's looking at those two more warehouses as two more warehouses that will fall apart in five to ten years. Instead of saying, no, let's not build those two now. Let's build five of very good quality that last 30 years. And then when we get more funding, we do the, those other two, and they, those will also last 30 years. So it's an underlying will to reduce the quality, to do more, because you're actually doing more, and you understand that. I want to do more. I want to affect more communities. But if you are affecting more communities with subpar quality, it means that those communities in five years will not have the capacity of rebuilding what you did. Uh, in 2000, we had a big flooding in the southern part of the country. It was a big disaster. A lot of dislodged people. At the time, it was $1 billion, the funding line. Uh, $700 million. It was a huge fund to support the recovery of the flood. Seven hundred million, but it was discounted all the armies from yeah. the. At start, the fund was already being used to transport the army capacity to the site. In 2000, we have a big flooding in, in all over the country, and immediately, Spanish army came with and deployed the. A group to with uh, hospitals, yeah. uh, the Italian, also the Americans, the, everybody sent the armies to, to help. And that was supposed to be an offer or a donor, but when this 700 million was collected, everybody discounted the costs of deploying these. The logistics. The logistics. And the Spanish, for example, they deployed uh, five uh, operating theaters. In flooding, you don't need operating theaters. You need that after an earthquake, because after flooding, we have people that need to eat, because they are forced for one week, they, they have nothing to eat or to... And so, but... But it was a very good military exercise for all the armies yeah. that came... How to so, deploy. Am I reading this right? It, a disaster happens in Mozambique, a certain amount of international aid is pledged, and then a good chunk of that money is spent these other countries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that was the effort. At the same time, uh, our NGO set up 
the urbanization close to the garbage dump that you're going to visit. There's a, a, bairro, a neighborhood called Maguanin. And they set up that area as a moving area for all the people dislodged in the region. And they were being moved into tents, no capacity, no quality. And the NGO approached the community and helped them set up a school, a training facility, a very small facility, and taught them how to build better houses. That movement alone was enough for that community to establish itself in good quality. Not teaching them urbanization, not giving them lectures on resilience, just helping them, teaching them how to use the, the capacity that they had better. This, any, a tiny touch on a community can do a lot more than a $100 million emergency fund. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel. I'd like to thank my guests of the week, Mario and Nuno del Rosario of Arquitectura y Planeamiento Limitada, for their thoughts on resilience, architecture, colonialism, and international aid. They confirmed for me something I'd long suspected, and something that I think often goes underreported, that there are systems at work throughout the world that create a kind of anti-resilience, that we are actively creating more and more vulnerable situations because at some level, it's good for business. I think to contemplate a truly resilient future requires not just good design, but a cultural shift, one where we prioritize human well-being over all else. But let me know what you think. Shoot me an email at eric at socialdesigninsights.com. That's E-R-I-C at socialdesigninsights.com. We're coming back next week with the second half of this amazing interview. Mario Nuno gave me so much to think about that I wanted to make sure that I get it all. Next week, we're going to be diving more into specific projects and talking about their approach to design. And they'll offer a roadmap, I think, for how real community-based design work is practiced. For more information about the work of Mario Nuno, please check out our website at currystonefoundation.org. There, you'll find narrative descriptions of their practice, images of their work, and some links to further your research. Social Design Insights is produced by Brug Seichner, and at the break, we're listening to Chikende by the Van Tibila off their album Sadza with the Head of a Mouse. I'd never heard of that one before. Thanks, Baruch. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Curry Stone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Curry Stone FDN for all the latest news on social impact design.